You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. We're going to hear from the scriptures this morning from the book of John. So sit there. You can open your own Bibles as we follow John 11 and 12. My name is Desmond. I'm one of the partners here at the Village Church. And today I will be reading starting with John chapter 11, verse 45, and ending in chapter 12, verse 11. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sedrahim and were saying what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs if we let him go on like this everyone would believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation one of them Cephas who was high priest that year said to them you know nothing at all you're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish he did not say this on his own but being high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to unite the scattered children God so from that day on they plotted to kill him Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim and he stayed there with the disciples now the Jewish Passover was near and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover they were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple What do you think? He won't come to the festival. Will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive yard, anointed Jesus' feet and 
wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Amen, amen. Uh, so if you've been following with us, we are traveling through this beautiful book called The Gospel of John, one of the four descriptions of the life and ministry of Jesus. And last week, we looked into one of the most well-known stories of Jesus raising from the grave his friend Lazarus and all of the different things around it. I would encourage you to go check that out in our resources if you missed that message. But we're picking up from that point today. And, you know, this miracle has happened. This man who was dead for multiple days has now been raised to life. And you would think, you would think if you were there and you saw a man that you know had died and he was in the grave and he's coming out bandages looking like a mummy, you would think there would be nothing I could do but bow before the feet of this Jesus and worship him. And some did. We learned that some people who were friends of Mary, who were there, who watched this, they indeed became uh, followers of Jesus Christ. But I think it also reveals sometimes the incorrect thinking that if we could just have like a very tangible miracle happen in our days in 2021, like not this talking from an old book, but like God does something, like brings someone to life, people would have no choice but to believe but what we're reminded here, that's, that's not necessarily the case. Yes, some believed because of the miracle. But in verse 46, it also tells us that some of them responded by going to tell the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, of what Jesus had done. So these religious leaders, the, the uh, chief priests and the Pharisees, they're concerned about what's going on. I mean, they've been following this Jesus for a while, tracking what's going on. Um, but we're, we're all given a little bit more explanation here in verse 47 um, of why they were maybe so concerned. It says, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And it's interesting when we see the description of the name Romans there. This is the first and only time in these four gospel accounts where Romans is used. And it helps us to understand why these leaders are so upset 
about Jesus' actions. So just to give a little context, about a century earlier, the Romans had conquered pretty much the entire Middle East, including the areas that we see the Bible accounts being described in. So it's not that there were soldiers in, in every small town and village, but there were large camps of military presence just a few miles north who were available, who were platooned, who could be called on for help as needed. So you can almost think of it, and it's been relevant in our own use, like the National Guard, who in times of, and instances of uprising and unrest, they come in when a strong presence is needed. So Roman soldiers were, were pretty much waiting for things like that. So these Jewish leaders here who are, who are kind of in a state of uh, anxious, um, you know, kind of worrying about Jesus, they're not just going off unfounded paranoia. These are not just conspiracy theories. They actually have memories of, of thousands of rebels, of young Jews, probably in protest, who had been murdered, who had been crucified when the army came through to put down, enforce insurrection activity. And, and we know from history, even after these times described in the gospel accounts, that this sort of thing would happen again less than 40 years later when the Romans destroyed the temple, the religious center in Jerusalem. So these things are not unfounded. So make no mistake, Jewish leaders, they would much prefer that there was no Roman Empire. There was no one leading them in rule. They desired their freedom, but they still preferred this sort of semi-freedom rather than the Romans coming in in full power of their military might and putting down a revolution by force. Because that's exactly what they're picturing could happen. That this Jesus, they're starting to realize he's not just a brilliant teacher. He's not just even an amazing leader. He's got power to do things that the people have never seen before. He teaches with authority, but he also commands nature itself. And it bows in submission to him. So what's going to happen if word gets out? And not just about these little like instances that people have maybe heard about that, you know, but they actually hear that there was a dead man. And this Jesus at his words brought him out of the grave. What will happen if people get a hold of that? And they start looking to their revolutionary leader. And then the Romans find out about it. I mean, it could kill the nation of Israel. Because the Romans, they'll tolerate these Jew, Jews to do their religious activity. And yeah, go, go do your festival stuff and worship your God, whatever that looks like. That's all cool. But at the sign of a revolution, at the sign of unrest, yo, that's when we're going to have to step in here. And that's what caused these leaders in verse 53 to say that they were then from that day plotting how they were going to kill this Jesus. So naturally, Jesus and his disciples, it describes that they got out of public view, but it's, it's mindful. We need to be mindful. This is not just a fear of being caught, being found out. Because if that was their driving motivation, I mean, ultimately, Jesus would have made much more effort to not be found in the end. Because this was not something sneaking up on Jesus. He knew that his road was to the sacrificial path 
of the cross. That was his destiny. That's why he had come to earth to be the salvation for all. But it would involve his own sacrifice of his life and death. His purpose was to be fulfilled. And and it's something that wasn't a surprise. I mean, he expressed this multiple times even to his disciples, which I always kind of wonder why they were so caught off guard because there's multiple times when it says he told him, hey, I'm going to have to die, but in three days I'm going to be raised from the grave. And what we discover here in the story today is others also had certain knowledge of what was to come. Look at verse 49. And this is describing this meeting of these religious leaders. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. So he's trying to quell some of their worries and anxiety here. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. So we're giving a little inside glimpse. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So this religious leader, Caiaphas, he's been given a prophetic understanding of what it was to come that Jesus, he was going to die. And he didn't have every insight that Jesus did, but he knew it was going to happen. So staying out of public view, it's not just a matter of preventing an arrest and a death. Jesus knows it's coming. But rather, it's a matter of timing. That's the point here. It's a matter of timing. There's a proper order to how this path would be unveiled. And, you know, that final week of Jesus' life before he was arrested and, and killed... I mean, in some sense, if you were just observing, it seemed like things were out of control. It seemed like chaos, um, but it's helpful to realize Jesus is always in control. And maybe even for you and I, maybe sometimes life, and you know, just a side thought, sometimes life and the circumstances feel like it's just um, insane. Like you have no idea what's going on. It's helpful to be reminded that even in the midst of those things that to our eyes seem out of control, that God knows what he's doing. And, and Jesus had full control of what's going on here. And it's where we find ourselves in chapter 12 as Jesus revisits these friends again. Look with me, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So it's cool, right? Lazarus, he's back from the grave. He's sitting there, chilling. They're having dinner together. They're celebrating Jesus. You know, they're having a dinner party. And everyone should be having a good time. Especially since their boy Lazarus is eating with them. I mean, that's, that's a miracle. It's amazing. But, but here's where things started to get a little tense. Verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So picture what's going on. It's a polite dinner party. They're all adults. They know how you're supposed to conduct yourself at a dinner party. And in the middle of that dinner party, you know, you're sitting there and, and you see this young woman getting up. You're like, oh, okay, what, what's Mary? Is she going to get some more coarse food? What, what's happening? And, and, and you see her bust out this perfume, and you can smell it. It's all over the house when she opened it up. And she starts anointing Jesus. 
And next thing you know, she let down her hair and starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And when you hear the story for us, again, in modern times, it might not have quite the impact, but if you're hearing this in the original context, knowing that you're meant to go, oh, what, what, what? Mary did what? Because in our days, obviously, it's normal for women to be um, in public with their hair down or honestly, any way they want. I mean, that's not even an issue, right? Um, but this was not done in the customs of those days. It was just not appropriate. In a way, it would be as if in our modern times, if we were having a polite dinner party and, and um, a woman pulling up a long skirt up to the top of her thighs, like everyone would get a little bit nervous, like what's going on here? That's, that's not normally what you do at, at a fancy restaurant. I mean, this joint just got really awkward. It got, it got real tense. It'd be like if, uh, just in another way, I was thinking, it's like, again, I'm, I'm just have different imaginations of what it'll look like to come together in person worship. And just picture we're here again and we are worshiping and like Pastor Larry or Pastor Julius, they up here and they just giving a, like a great sermon and you're all excited and you're hype. And you know, one of the pastors, they just nail this one point. And it's like when you're watching a football game and your favorite player scores that touchdown and, and you stand up in the middle of worship and, and you're a dude you go who's so excited about that point from the sermon. You, it's like you're at the game, right? You're at M&T Bank. You rip off your shirt in the middle of worship and you start running around here waving your shirt. Like, whoa, go pastor. That was amazing. I mean, everyone be like, Yo, you seeing this? Someone get this fool. You don't do that. That's weird. That's awkward. I mean, I know you're feeling excited, but we, we just don't do that. That's really inappropriate. The point being, when Mary did what she did here, that's just not what is done. Imagine how tense it must have felt in that room. And, and this is a very sensory experience, so they're not just seeing this, but the smell it's just hanging in that room. Even if they wanted to move on from it, they can smell what's going on. But yo, this is like an awkwardness, the gift of awkwardness that just keeps on giving, right? Because Judas Iscariot, who we're told here, would be the one that would go on to betray Jesus. He, he just has to jump into the situation. In verse 5, he says, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And if you read this without any understanding of nothing else, you'd be going, oh, okay, everyone else is a fool. But Judas, he's like, he's got his head set on straight. He's thinking about what's important. I mean, but it's, it's got real tense, real awkward, because I'm sure everyone had an opinion of what Mary was doing, but Judas happened to express it verbally. I mean, this, this would be um, just the most incredible, appropriate place for like an anchorman meme, that whole, well, that escalated quickly. I mean, it just went from like a cool dinner party to like insanity. It was crazy. And, and the thing is, on its face, Judas's comment, I mean, it's really understandable. And we're described here, 300 denarii, that would be known as about a year's wages. This is a large amount of money over some perfume poured on a man. But John, he provides us some literary context to explain what prompted Judas to blurt this out. Um, 
you know, this past week, one of the biggest stories was this whole, if, you, if this makes no sense to you, it's okay. It doesn't make much sense to me. But basically on the stock market, you got names like Robinhood and, and just changing the ways that stocks were being traded, different information. And, and one of the most fascinating things, if you don't understand, it's all cool, but you can basically know this, a lot of movie, money moved around in ways that people were not used to. And when that happens, people have a visceral reaction. And some of the most fascinating interviews were with people, very wealthy people, who were steamed about all this happening. Stocks being traded in ways that were not um, known to how it usually happened. And, and they could potentially lose a lot of money. And they're just like mad and angry at everyone, angry at the system, angry at people who are doing this. And it's like, that's what's happening with Judas here. It, we're, we are described. It's not that he's so concerned about the poor but ultimately, it's his own bottom line because he was, you know, taken from the money. He was in charge of it. So you think about 300 denarii that went to being perfume poured on a man. He's thinking, yo, why wasn't that given to us? Because that's where I was taken from. But with all that, take away what you know about Judas. And I know it's hard because it's there, but take away some of these content. Just go by what he said, because I think in his words themselves, again, without any of this other background, I'm thinking that some of us might have responded similarly to how Judas did. I know I would have. And not like Judas were giving the benefit of that. Not it's because, you know, you're, you're afraid of what you're going to lose, but it's just the simple ethics of the situation. Um, I mean, maybe just very practically, maybe you've been in situations where you've seen how others have spent money and you've even asked yourself, couldn't this have been used in another way, especially to those who really could use help? And maybe it's Jesus' statement itself in verse 8 that, that leaves you a little conflicted because Jesus says some really beautiful stuff. But man, he says some stuff that really gets you thinking, right? Verse 8, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And if this statement leaves you puzzled, I mean, cool, because it, it leaves almost everyone like that. I mean, it, re it really raises more questions than answers, especially as the scriptures speak to so, seem to speak so often on the topic of wealth. And, you know, I think there's always been a lot of different uh, responses to even verses like this. Well, I, I know some churches who sometimes have gotten pushback when they've made large, large expenditures or perhaps like working on things like uh, big expenses, like with a, a facility and, and they'll always get pushback. Like, couldn't you use that a different way? And, and really using verses like this almost to justify saying, this is about worship of Jesus. You know, that's why we spend money this way rather than perhaps in benevolence because Jesus deserves our best. Or, or you know, maybe an idea that, that some will use verses like this to suggest that ultimately what Jesus is saying here is that caring for material needs on this earth, it's, not, it's important, but it's not as important about thinking about the eternal, about thinking of things of God, of eternity. That's where we should really be concerned with. But maybe... Um, we need to consider that this isn't intended to be an either or. Jesus is not putting a choose which one you will today. 
that either you care about Jesus, you really love him, or you care about the poor. Because when we see throughout the scriptures, if you just do a study and and a survey through the the words of God in the Bible, a continual aspect you see from the beginning through to the end is this message of honoring the materially poor. And we see plenty of that in Jesus' time, but Jesus is just reflecting what's come in the law before him. Uh, Leviticus 19, one of the best examples, talking about some of the provisions God had put in for his people, starting verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. God is saying, if you're my people, you're not going to try to hoard as much as you can. You're not going to gather everything you possibly could because part of the reason you've been given so much is so that you can share with those who do not have. And this is something we see reflected throughout. And for the church of Jesus, even after he died and rose from the grave and ascended back into heaven, we see that the church carries on this mantle of caring for the poor. We should be the most generous, I would suggest, out of anyone in this world for those who lack materially. Simply, to follow Jesus is to care for others, including the poor. So, what I'm saying is to focus on this story as, as providing a basis or not for our care for the poor. I think it might be missing the larger point of what we're supposed to get out of this. Rather, remember again, this is all a matter of timing. And Jesus tells us so in verse 7. Leave her alone as he's responding to the rebuke against Mary. Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day Of my burial. Jesus is affirming what she's done. She's not saying, Yeah, Mary, you know, a little too much. I know you're all about the passion and expressing, but man, you know, I care for the poor, so just object lesson, save it for the poor. I appreciate your gesture. I mean, that's not what he says. He's told her, No, leave her alone. Her head's head's on straight, she knows what she's doing. Because, yeah, Mary might have been a little over the top. A little bit, right? And, and some of you who are even prone to less showy expressions, like you like to keep things a little internal, maybe you would have even been like, did Mary really have to show off like that? Always having to let everyone know how much she loved Jesus. And maybe Martha was thinking similar thoughts as she faithfully served while Mary made a big spectacle of herself. But... We don't know how Mary got this information and and maybe she didn't even know all the specifics, but she seemed to have a knowledge that Jesus was going to die. Our story suggests that she, I mean, this it's not like expensive perfumes just lying around, but she had gotten this expensive perfume intentionally with the purposes of anointing his body after Jesus would die. And whether her actions here were planned out or they were um, a passionate spur of the moment thing, she was led to anoint. She was led to anoint Jesus right there at the dinner table. And maybe her actions, as as dramatic as they were, maybe they were meant to give a prophetic statement of what was coming. That Jesus' burial it was coming sooner than anyone had expected. And these things at the end, 
they would happen so fast that there'd be no time to really do a proper anointing when the time came. So that time was now, even in the middle of a dinner party. And you know, sometimes when loved ones pass, it's tragically unexpected and, and we don't have any opportunity to prepare. But sometimes you, we know what's coming, you know, whether it's a long extended illness. And in those situations, I, I think it'd be strange, if not like kind of inappropriate, to just like act like everything's normal. Um, like even if there are needs to do and there are things to meet and deadlines to, to follow. And, and bills to pay, there's a sense that, yeah, that all that's really important. But right now, we have got a certain amount of time left with this person because they're about to pass. So we're going to do whatever we can to honor them, even at the cost of other good things. Because you know your time is coming to an end. And I think that's what Mary was doing here in a sense, in anointing Jesus with this costly perfume. She was preparing him for his burial. Because the truth is, it was a lot of money. I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. That's a lot of money. I mean, it feels almost audaciously extravagant, like too much. I mean, some of us, maybe you like me, right? You like discount stores. You've been like, eh, couldn't you have found like the cheaper off-label version of that? Like not the 300 denarii version of Nard, but like the Costco version of that? Because that's a lot of money. And it, it, I think as we think about it, our response to a story like this, it can be really revealing. And there can be different kinds of responses. I mean, one natural response can go, wow, that sure was expensive. Woo, that was a lot. Or we can also go, wow, Jesus sure must be worth it. Wow, look at how much he paid. Jesus, she must have loved him so much. She must have thought he was so amazing. Because how we respond may reflect who we consider Jesus to be. Because the cost of our gift, it reveals the worth of our worship. The cost of our gift reveals the worth of our worship. I mean, y'all get this without maybe thinking it through fully. I mean, y'all get this because when it's time for that um, holiday party at work, and some of you, right, you love pandemic because there was no holiday parties. You're like, yes, holiday party by myself, at my home, with my Netflix. But, you know, in, in normal times, you got this party, you come together, and it's like kind of a requirement that you got to get a gift, and you get the order of who gets gifts for who in the office. And, and it might not even be someone you all like all that much, right? But you got to get the gift. What do you do? You look carefully at those gift instructions, and you're looking for what is the bare minimum that I got to spend on this gift, or at least look like I spent. And you go straight to that discount aisle at the store, right? You're looking for that bargain bin at, um, at the store. Or better yet, I mean, you're looking to re-gift something that you never had to pay for in the first place. Because you didn't want it. And you don't want to spend any money on this person. Because the recipient of your gift in that situation is just not worth you spending all that much. You don't think about them all that much. Why would you want anything to cost too much to yourself? But in contrast... 
Picture one of those most important people in your life. Picture that person that you love with all your heart and soul and your mind and your strength. Maybe it's those persons that make your heart go pitter-patter, those you would drop whatever you're doing to be with them. And with those kind of people, you're not asking, man, how much do I have to spend so I don't get in trouble here? You're almost conflicted because even if you don't have the means, even if you're struggling, even if you feel like you don't get that much to spend, your heart says, man, I wish I had more to spend because this person is so important because she deserves so much more than what I can give because he is so amazing and he's been there for me so much. Man, I wish I had more. What can I sell so I could have more to be able to provide the best gift? Because who the object of our cost is, it determines the worth of our sacrifice. It reminds me of this great story I heard um, back in the day of a pastor I knew. And at the time, he was in seminary. And that's just training to be vocationally in pastoral ministry. So um, just in case it's unclear, if you want to get real materially wealthy in life, being a pastor is probably not you know, the path to do that, unless you get your own television show one day and, you know, get your hair real up high. It's probably not a means to like material uh, wealth. Um, But, you know, you live life, right? So this uh, pastor who was in seminary and training, one of his youth group students was in the car with him and and looked in the back of the car and saw a uniform for 7-Eleven. And it's like, what was that? And, you know, it, it, was, it was not like a big public thing because his main job was to be a student as well as a youth pastor for these students. But he said, um, I picked up some work at the 7-Eleven during the night times as much as I can. And, and the kid's like, why? 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 He's like, there is this woman I am so in love with and I want to marry her. But again, you know, You think I'm rolling because I'm a youth pastor, but it doesn't pay that much. So I want to make as much as I can so I can get the best ring I possibly can to ask her to marry me. And you know, the thing is, some of you are like, oh, God, I want something like that. Um, The thing is, it's like, I, I have not met who is now his wife in person. I don't know her. But from that story, I have this idea that she must be pretty amazing. She must be so wonderful, at least for him. Because you look at the cost of a sacrifice you're willing to make for someone, and it just reveals the worth of the object of that sacrifice. Because the more beautiful someone is to you, the more you're willing, even at your own expense and cost and sacrifice, the more you're willing to give. And as we consider God. The sacrifice of our worship should be costly to us. And I know we live in an age and in a generation and in a society where sometimes the goal is 
Uh, we want to make it as easy and comfortable for you as possible to meet Jesus. And I am so with that. You know, even as we think about our air conditioning in the building, we got the air conditioning partly because it was just miserable here. And, you know, we don't want, you know, we don't want it to be so bad during the summer times and that people are sweating and it's painful to be here. Say, see, look how much it costs. You must love Jesus so much because we, we don't want we want more people to be here. So it, it's not talking about that. But I, I do think there's warrant to consider sometimes if we're trying to make our worship of Jesus so easy at, at, and trying to remove the cost, I feel like we're missing out on something. We're missing out on some of the value of looking at what does it cost me to worship God? Is it costing me time I could be spent doing something else? Does it cost me because the time I'm spending loving him and loving people, does it cost me actually some steps that perhaps I could be rising in my professional rank? Does my worship of Jesus, does it cost me a little bit in terms of my reputation as an academic, as an intellectual? That, that's why I'm actually a little hesitant for people who are not in the church to know that I'm a follower of Jesus because I don't want them to look down on me. That would be too, too much of a cost for my professional esteem. Or maybe the cost is, um, you know, I, I just, I, I want to be with this person or with these group of people. And if they knew that I, I follow Jesus, or if I push it a little too much, if I talk about him too much, they might reject me. And that's not a cost I'm willing to bear. Whatever it might be, there should be an aspect of our worship of this great God that is costly to us. That involves sacrifice. And I want to be clear, not just as a means to demonstrate how devoted we are. I mean, that's part of it, I guess. But you can be dedicated and sacrificial because it's the right thing. But inwardly, like gritting your teeth the whole time, like not really wanting to, not really happy. And I'm not saying sacrifice is fun, but like you're almost begrudgingly doing it. Because I don't think that's necessarily what God's looking for. But it should be costly because the one we worship is that great. Our sacrifice should be costly because we have started to get a glimpse of how amazing God is. It's why we do what we do at our church. And you know, that even as you listen to the announcements, you might be thinking, oh man, the church has got a lot going on. I guess they really want to keep me busy so that I won't get involved in bad stuff and, and have things to do to keep my time occupied. Um, maybe, but that's not really driving it. Everything we do in our church, it has an intentional purpose. Some of that is very intentional to help other people who don't know Jesus yet have an inroads to be able to connect with him. But I would say along with that, much of what we do is designed to intentionally put you in a place to help cultivate your affections for this beautiful savior that we call Jesus. That when we say, go to a group, we're not just saying, yeah, you're lonely, so you need some people. Maybe. But what we're saying is, be in a place where in the midst of the darkest of days, you've got some other people who are going to continue to walk with you, encourage you, fix your eyes on this Jesus who does not let you go, who is faithful to the end, who even in the midst of your sufferings is pointing you to hope. That when we talk about worshiping together, it's not just to check off lists or for us to have an attendance numbers or be able to gauge certain success. It's ultimately be in a place where you're singing, even if that singing is done from your couch, but fix your eyes on Jesus and let your glimpse of him get bigger and bigger and take in how sweet he is, how beautiful he is. Be amazed 
That even in your sin, even in your rebellion, there is one who calls Jesus, who comes and gives his life and sacrifice for you. Trading your sorrows, giving you joy, forgiving your sin. What we do in our church is to put you in a place to gaze more and more upon the beauty of this God. Have your affections cultivated. You know, and as we bring that home, for some of you, this is not necessarily meant to um, be a guilt-inducing statement or, or a thought, but more a time for you to reflect. Ask yourself, does, does my heart saying that the cost feels too high? Is it because the Jesus that I know is really not all that great? And I'm not saying that objectively, I'm mean, Jesus is who he is. He's great, but our perception of him can be different. And maybe it's for some of us, it's that you used to think he was great, but now it's kind of become a little bit muddled. Or maybe you've never had a glimpse of Jesus like that. Maybe it's been purely a series of teachings or, or moral ideas, but it's not really translated beyond that. So when it comes to cost, you're like, eh, I don't know if it's worth it. May I suggest to you that Jesus deserves everything we have because this is a God who didn't hold back anything for us. He demonstrated how valuable we are to him by the great cost of his sacrifice. And you know, some of you wrestle with your worth. Some of you, and the pandemic has just brought it out fully. Sometimes the quietness of life, the isolation of these times, it forces you to take a look at yourself. And sometimes you just don't like what you see in the mirror. You feel you fall short. You feel like you're not making much of your life. You feel like people don't like you. You feel like things just keep not happening the way they're supposed to. You keep disappointing others and you disappoint yourself. At those times, this is not just like a feel better about yourself. This is theological truth. Um, you have great worth, not because necessarily of what you've produced or built, like the world tells you, but because there is a God and his name is Jesus, who would give his life for you. So if you ever doubt that your life means something, if you have any shred of doubt that your life is important, that your life matters, can I ask you to consider Jesus would not give his life for you if your life did not matter. It's like the high priest said in our story that Jesus would ultimately have to die for the nations. But sometimes I think that can be too big. Can I ask you this morning as you hear that, to think, yeah, for the nations, for everyone, but that Jesus also died for you. And put your name in there. Jesus died for the nations, but he also died for Bill. Jesus also died for Margie. Whatever your name is, can you put in there, Jesus also died for me. So close your eyes with me for a second and think about again the cost of your sacrifice. And the goal of this message should not be, I need to sacrifice more. I need to find more costly things. I need to give more. I need to, you know, maybe, but it doesn't start there. Ultimately, the invitation is see this Jesus for all that he is. 
See him in his grandness and his majesty and his beauty. Do the things that the church is providing for you, not to be more active, but to enlarge your affections for Jesus. And I'm guaranteeing you the sacrifice will come because it's not going to feel like too great a cost when you see how great Jesus is. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for all my friends who are worshiping together right now. Some of us know you very well. Some of you, this is our first time hearing about you. And some of us are right in the middle. We've known you well, but it's kind of just become normal. Wherever we are at, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts and give us eyes to recognize that when we see Jesus, we are seeing glory. And maybe the cost feels high of what it means to give our worship. But Lord, give our eyes the vision to see how grand you are. And that in response, anything we would have would not be enough because you deserve everything as the Savior who gave it all to make us yours. So we love you. We're amazed. And Lord, if any of us have lost some of that amazement of how much you love us, rekindle that fire, Lord. Take it from just doctrinal understanding and make it real again that you love each of us in that amazing sacrificial way. And it would transform our hearts in responsive worship to you. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray.